The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Welcome to the American Health Law Association's monthly fraud abuse podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel, and today is April 13th, 2021. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series we're launching on agency interactions. This month, we're talking about advisory opinions, how to request guidance from CMS and from the Office of Inspector General at HHS, what to expect with the process, and what will they address. In a later episode, we'll dive into self-disclosures and their benefits and risks. Joining us today to talk about advisory opinions are Kristen Carter, a partner with the law firm of Baker Donaldson, and Laura Morgan, a partner with Dorsey and Whitney in Minneapolis. Kristen, Laura, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Matt. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're going to try to tackle this podcast in a somewhat orderly fashion. Uh, we did a planning uh, meeting last week, and I know there's a lot of uh, excitement about the topic of advisory opinions, especially among regulatory lawyers. So, Kristen, uh, you're going to focus on the OIG and the anti-kickback statute, the beneficiary inducement CMP process, and Laura, you'll focus on CMS and its Stark advisory process. So, is that a, that's a deal? Sounds great. Sounds good. All right. Well, um, you know, maybe we'll start uh, uh, in, in recent times. Uh, Laura, you're actually the impetus for this podcast. We had uh, uh, shared some messages earlier this year about recent changes to the Stark advisory process that really kind of piqued your interest. And I wonder if you might share those with our listeners before we dive into uh, some of the uh, nuts and bolts of the advisory uh, opinion process at CMS and at OIG. Sure thing. Yes, there. Uh, the Stark and uh, OI, CMS and OIG regulatory changes have have been uh, quite a lot for us regulatory lawyers to to process lately. Um, and in the midst of the flurry of regulatory changes, as part of the regulatory sprint to coordinated care, um, CMS also finalized some ch- regulatory changes to the Stark advisor opinion regulations, which were finalized um, effective as of January first, twenty twenty. And this came about um, as actually as part of the regulatory sprint to coordinated care. There was a request for information that CMS issued in June 2018 um, uh, uh, that CMS sent out to uh, address ways that CMS could modify the Stark Law to reduce barriers to patient care coordination value-based arrangements. Um, and CMS didn't specifically solicit comments regarding the Stark Advisory Opinion process in that RFI, but they received a number of comments about ways that the advisory opinion process could be improved. And so they decided to take a fresh review of the advisory opinion process in light of those comments to identify limitations and restrictions that may be unnecessarily serving as an obstacle to a more robust advisor opinion process. Um, and CMS acknowledged in uh, preamble to its changes to advisor opinion regulations that a faster and more robust advisor opinion process facilitates the shift to value-based care for providing more guidance for parties trying to understand how the Stark Law applies in an evolving and innovative marketplace. Um, and some of the notable changes I'll, I'll get into more during our discussion today, uh, but they 
CMS expanded the parties that can uh, rely on advisory opinions and updated some of the time timeframes under which opinions must must be issued. Um, and there have been very few stark advisory opinions issued historically, particularly in comparison to how many opinions OIG has issued historically. Um, so we're hopeful that um, this process will um, will indeed um, make the advisory opinion process more meaningful and accessible to the regulated industry. Well, thanks for that update, uh, uh, Laura. And, uh, you know, as you said, as a, as a regulatory lawyer, it's interesting how the process works at the agency. And, you know, I, I do want to dig a little bit into sort of the history of the advisory opinion process. I want to dig into um, the agency's authority in this area. But, you know, maybe just at a high level, uh, and Kristen, let's start with you on the OIG and the kickback side. Um, when and why would someone go to OIG for an advisory opinion? Sure. So, you know, with respect to the OIG advisory opinion process, this is a, a pretty mature program that's been around since 1996. And just to sort of give some history here, um, this is part of the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. Um, and Congress and the OIG recognized that the anti-kickback statute, which is a criminal statute, is very, on its face, very broad. And the penalties are significant, um, you know, felony, punishable by fines and imprisonment. And there was concern in the industry for many years leading up to the adoption of the advisory opinion process that relatively innocuous commercial arrangements um, are technically covered by the statute and the safe harbor protections weren't necessarily always broad enough to cover those. So that is sort of what led to both, you know, Congress providing OIG with this authority at the time, they all they you know already had the authority to adopt safe harbor regulations, but those are sort of broader. Um, they they deal with you know activity across the industry as opposed to very specific facts. Um, so parties can seek formal guidance re regarding the application of the anti-kickback statute, or as you mentioned, the um, CMP for beneficiary inducement related to a particular arrangement under this process. Great. No, Kristen, that's 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 really helpful. And Laura, same question for you. When and why would you go to CMS for an advisory opinion? Yeah, there's um, you know a, a a wide range of um, of reasons to do so. Um, but getting getting into um, jumping off of what Kristen said on the the history of the advisory opinion authorities a little bit. First, um, and it's a similar time frame for um, the Stark Law. Congress amended the Stark Law in 1997 um, to require that the Secretary issue advisory opinions concerning whether a referral relating to DHS, other than clinical laboratory services, is prohibited by the Stark Law. Um, and despite this caveat, there has been a few um, clinical laboratory services. There have been a few advisory opinions related to um, clinical labs. Um, and in terms of, um, and then CMS started be accepting advisor opinions in 1997. Um, but since that time, there's only been about one or two advisor opinions um, published each year. Um, and as I mentioned, um, this is a part of the impetus for the changes to the advisor opinion process 
um, in the regulations that were finalized on January 1st of 2020 is that CMS recognizes that um, it, even though it intended this process to provide um, meaning, a meaningful source for the regulated industry to understand the applicability of the Stark Law, it hasn't in, in it hasn't in practice provided that meaningful guidance. Um, so um, with uh, the changes to the advisor opinions regulations that went into effect, CMS is hoping that that will change um, because now um, oh, under the um, revised SARC regulations and advisor opinions binding uh, on the secretary of HHS and means that sanctions will not be imposed under the Stark law with respect to individuals and any entities, not only that are parties to the arrangement upon which the opinion was issued, um, I'm sorry, not only the parties that requested the opinion, but parties um, that are, are a party to the arrangement upon which the opinion was issued. And in addition, and notably, um, the secretary will not pursue sanctions under the Stark Law against any party to an arrangement that CMS determines is indistinguishable in all its material aspects from an arrangement which, with respect to which CMS issued a favorable advisor opinion. Um, and parties can even submit an advisor opinion request to determine whether CMS would view their arrangement as indistinguishable in all material aspects from another arrangement that has received a favorable opinion, uh, which will be issued by CMS on an expedited basis. Um, and CMS also indicated that individuals and entities can rely on ad advisor opinions as non-binding guidance that illustrates the application of Stark um, and to the specific facts and circumstances described in the advisor opinion, um, which uh, parties have done in practice, but this is now acknowledged in, in the regulations. Um, and so in terms of you know, when it would be, um, a party would decide when they would go to CMS for an opinion, um, you know, this, there's often, oftentimes in um, doing Stark Law analysis, there's a lot of close questions, um, and there's there's a lot of costs involved in um, uh, in the, doing this analysis in the in the first place, and then in um, in in seeking an advisory opinion. Um, if there is, you know, sometimes a party might receive uh, contrary opinions from um, you know dif different regulatory councils. Or perhaps they um, they have opted to on advice of counsel have opted not to enter into an arrangement that a competitor has perhaps entered into, um, and they want to understand you know whether they could uh, enter into a similar arrangement um, if if CMS were to issue a favorable advisor opinion, um, and then and also you know we have not yet seen because of there's. Still been so little advisory opinions issued, including only two uh, in the last calendar year. I don't know that anyone has really been taken advantage um, to to a great extent to this new provision of the regulations that specify that um, the secretary will not pursue sanctions against any party to an arrangement that CMS determines is indistinguishable in all its material aspects from an arrangement with respect to which CMS has issued a favorable advisory opinion. Um, but I think that over time, that that provision in particular um, will hopefully provide a lot of really useful um, guidance and comfort to parties, particularly as we all um, seek to to understand what the um, final Stark regulations under the regulatory sprint, uh, particularly as they relate to value-based enterprises and new innovative arrangements that parties want to enter into. Um, that 
and how those fit into the new Stark exceptions that just came out. Um, so I think that over time, this will, um, you know, th that in particular will lead to a lot more useful guidance and uh, hopefully more parties taking advantage of that. Well, thank you, Laura, for for that uh, uh, exposition on the on the recent changes and the ability to rely on uh, advisory opinions, et cetera. I think it's important to note um, that there might be some distinctions there between uh, CMS's, um, you know, authority to allow others to uh, either use um, the advisory opinions as non-binding guidance versus OIG's um, uh, uh, authority there, but maybe we could dig into that momentarily. I want to turn it over to Kristen. Um, talk to me a little bit about the uh, OIG advisory process, how it works, how does somebody originate a request, how long does it take, what can we expect from OIG uh, when, when, when you submit a request for an advisory opinion? Sure, sure, Matt. And I do think it's important that we revisit on this, who can rely on the, the OIG advisory opinion, because as you pointed out, it is a little bit different. But in terms of the process, um, the OIG has a great website on the advisory opinion, um, both listing its you know, previously issued advisory opinions, as well as the process and walking you through the regulations and common questions to be asking yourself, the information to gather, et cetera. But in general, the requesting party must gather the information related to a proposed or actual arrangement that they intend to enter into. You can't just seek advice on something that you do not plan to undertake if should you get a favorable advisory opinion. They don't want hypotheticals. Um, you know, general information required includes identification information related to the requester, other potential parties. You know, identifying the, one of the important things is to identify the precise question you're asking to the OIG in terms of their regulatory authorities and statutory authorities you're asking them to weigh in on. Are you asking a question about the application of the anti-kickback statute? Are you asking about a particular safe harbor regulation? Are you for example, very close to meeting a safe harbor, if that's the case and there's only one or two elements you're not meeting, you know, you want to incorporate that and advocate as to why, um, you know, not meeting those elements, there's still sufficient safeguards in place. Um, you know, as a best practice, you have to provide relevant background information and a factual description of the arrangement as a best practice, we typically recommend including an analysis, make the OIG's job easier on them by describing the mm -hmm. analysis. You know, in addition, you, you know, as part of the process, you have to have a certification from the requester, whether it be the requester himself or um, if it's an entity, a responsible party at that requester. In terms of um, sort of timing, on an OIG advisory request, there is stat or, or regulatory timing around it, which is really helpful. Within 10 days of submission, the OIG will formally accept it, um, will either formally accept the request for an advisory opinion, notify the requester of what input additional information is needed, or decline to formally accept the request. And once it's accepted, the OIG has 60 days to issue the advisory opinion. Now, that 60 days can be told at various points if they need additional information. And so, you know, on average, I think what I've seen is the process can take, you know, six to nine months, but it's a relatively, 
you know, quick process in the grand scheme of things. And then one thing to keep in mind um, is that the party is responsible for the fees associated with the OIG's fees associated with preparing the advisory opinion. Um, I think the latest charge is about 160 or $176 per hour. The parties can request an estimate ahead of time um, or set sort of a cap, but then once you hit that cap, the OIG will notify you and then make a determination as to whether or not you want to proceed forward with it. But that, again, would sort of toll your timing. So that's sort of the general process. Generally, prior to issuing an advisory opinion, they will have an informal dialogue. There'll be requests for information if, for example, they need additional information to consider the, the question posed or additional factual certifications. But prior to issuing it, you typically will get a reach out for an informal discussion related to where the OIG is going with the analysis. And you have an opportunity, for example, if you wanted to withdraw that request, um, and then you're required to make that payment prior to the issuances of the advisory opinion. No, that's great, Kristen. And, and I appreciate in particular the concept of fees associated with the advisory process. Laura, quickly, um, does CMS um, similarly charge fees for the advisory process? They do, yes. And that was part of what was changed in the recent uh, regulatory changes. Um, it went from an initial fee of 250 to there's now an hourly rate of $220. Um, so that's a bit more than what Chris indicated for the, the OIG. Um, and then in addition to that, um, CMS can charge any fees for any out, outside experts that they bring on, such as like an accountant or another outside expert that they would bring on. And just like with OIG, as Kristen mentioned, um, the requesting party can designate a triggering dollar amount if um, they're not able to pay over that amount. That's uh, that's great, Laura. In fact, it's a good segue into my next question. Uh, you mentioned bringing on experts. How do the agencies form their guidance? Can they rely on or use outside experts or evidence? It sounds like they can. Uh, can they conduct an investigation as part of the process? Um, uh, uh, Laura, maybe we'll start with you on the CMS side. Sure. Yeah, the, the regulations specify that CMS can request expert advice from qualified sources if they believe that advice is necessary to respond to a request for an advisor opinion, um, such as like an accountant, as I mentioned. Um, and CMS will notify the requester of uh, if it thinks that this is necessary and estimate the cost for that advice. Um, and then CMS arranges for that expert to provide, uh, provide that review. And Kristen, uh, similarly on the OIG side, what's the process for using outside evidence, consultants, experts, et cetera? Yeah, similarly, the OIG regulations expressly allow them to seek out expert opinions and provide some examples of medical reviewers, quality improvement organizations, um, and the like to obtain medical opinions on specific issues. Once that request is made, their, their time frame is told, um, how I talked about that 60 days, and they also um, require that there be payment associated with that expert opinion. That's great. That's great. Now, turning back to the question that we asked before about relying on opinions, um, Laura, in a nutshell, who can rely on a CMS advisory opinion? So 
The individual or entity that requested the advisor opinion, of course, may rely on the favorable opinion. Um, but in addition, as I mentioned, um, other individuals or entities that are parties to the arrangement upon which the opinion was issued um, can also rely on the opinion. Um, and then, while, while not using the language of reliance, that the regulations indicate that the secretary will not pursue sanctions um, under the Stark about, against any party to an arrangement that CMS determines is indistinguishable in all its material aspects from an arrangement with respect to which CMS issued that favorable opinion. Um, and as I mentioned, you can submit a request to determine whether CMS views the arrangement as indistinguishable, um, which is helpful. And then beyond so that, in go ahead. I was just gonna. I was gonna say. So it's almost as if, with this indistinguishable in all material aspects, you could get an advisory opinion on the advisory opinion. Exactly. That's right. Got it. Got it. Kristen, turning over to the OIG and kickback side, who can rely on an OIG advisory opinion? By regulation, only the requesters and someone who has joined in that request can rely on the advisory opinion. Um, it has no application on any individual or entity that does not join or is just, you know, for example, viewing a copy of the, the advisory opinion on the website. I think people view, people in the industry view these advisory opinions as very helpful guidance. Um, but, you know, the OIG basically is only providing the relief or, or you know, will not impose sanctions if it, if it issues a favorable advisory opinion on the particular requesters. Um, one of the things, too, to keep in mind with an OIG uh, advisory opinion request, and I think this Laura would say on the CMS side, is the OIG is really only opining on those regulations and statutes under which it has authority. So the advisory opinion is not binding on anyone on the government side that's outside of the OIG's um, purview. It's, it's the OIG's views on the legal and factual issues that were raised as part of the advisory opinion request. So for example, the OIG's guidance isn't binding on CMS as part of the Stark protocol. And in fact, they won't weigh in on, on Stark related issues. That's good guidance, Kristen. And, um, you know, sort of thinking about um, the scope of the opinion, just as you say, Kristen, you know, what guidance can we expect from OIG in a kickback or beneficiary inducement advisory opinion? Sure. So generally what you will see is the OIG will provide guidance to the requester as to whether or not the um, factual arrangement or the arrangement that party intends to undertake or has started to undertake um, as to whether it implicates the, the anti-kickback statute or complies with the safe harbor regulations or otherwise, you know, implicates exclusion authorities or their CMP authorities. And generally what you'll see in a favorable opinion is that either it doesn't implicate the authorities or um, OIG will opine that it fell within a safe harbor. Um, or more often is the case, you'll see a statement from the OIG saying that this could be remuneration under the anti-kickback statute, for example, that could, you know, trigger, that, that could implicate the statute. 
However, given, you know, the parties, if they describe the arrangement and have put in sufficient safeguards and the like, the OIG might say, given this factual circumstance and the safeguards that you say the parties have certified to, we won't impose sanctions in this circumstance. On the flip side, you know, they might, on a, a negative opinion, say that, you know, this triggers the, the anti-kickback statute and depending on the party's intent, might lead to, you know, sanctions under the anti-kickback statute or the CMPs. And Laura, same question for you. What guidance can we expect from a CMS advisory opinion? Sure. So the advisory opinion request um, concerns whether physicians referral relating to DHS um, is prohibited under Stark. And CMS determines whether the business arrangement that the parties describe um, to constitute a financial relationship as defined by Stark um, that could potentially restrict a physician's referrals or whether the arrangement or the DHS at issue qualifies for any of the, the Stark exceptions. Um, and just like with, with OIG, the request has to relate to an existing arrangement or one in which the requester in good faith plans to spe uh, specifically plans to enter, um, which can be contingent upon them receiving a favorable advisory opinion, of course. Now let's turn to uh, recent changes uh, in the healthcare environment that might have an impact or be impacted by the advisory opinion uh, process. And, and, and by this, I mean COVID-19, the response to COVID-19, and then also the move to value-based care and care coordination models that we've seen HHS uh, so open to addressing over the past uh, uh, year and a half or so. So maybe starting with COVID-19, um, what, what's been the impact on advisory opinions at CMS, Laura? Have we seen an increase? Have we seen um, a focus on this, uh, a change in focus of substantive uh, uh, guidance given by the agency? Do we expect to see more? Yeah, so I would say that there was really not a noticeable difference in the in the last year, um, based on COVID nineteen and the um, or the or for that matter the, um, the the changes to the Stark regulations on advisory opinions that came out just before COVID nineteen, um, in in twenty twenty. Um, so and we saw just two advisor opinions come out um, in calendar year twenty twenty that did not really differ too much um, uh, in, from the type of advisor opinions that um, CMS has issued historically. So topically, um, didn't not, not a, a big change based on, on COVID-19. Um, and also didn't, you know, have not seen anything on, for example, um, the, the waivers related to COVID-19 purposes. Um, you know, perhaps CMS has been more uh, uh, more willing to um, talk with parties in, informally, or again, you know, there's costs and otherwise prohibitive to some parties and in, in, in seeking advisory opinions. And Kristen, same question for you on the OIG side. Has there been any shift in either topical areas or impact uh, or other impacts from uh, COVID-19 and the response to COVID-19? Well, in, in response to COVID-19, the OIG came out with a pretty strong statement that it would exercise enforcement discretion related to, you know, its, its authorities during the, the pandemic. Um, and as part of that, they actually created sort of a separate process that I don't know if advisory opinion light is the right way to call it because it's really just an FAQ process um, that they allowed parties to 
pursue um, quicker informal guidance from the agency related to the COVID-19 emergency and arrangements directly impacted by that. Um, so as part of that process, which is really outside of the advisory opinion process, I, I, I jokingly call it light because I think there's um, some strong differences between it. But as part of that process, the OIG was willing to accept email questions um, around their administrative enforcement authorities, including the federal anti-kickback statute and the CMP related to beneficiary inducements related to various arrangements that might impact, you know, providing care during COVID-19. So some sample topics that we saw, um, can a hospital, pharmacy, or health system provide other providers or suppliers with items related to vaccine storage, distribution, administration? Things that might otherwise trigger the anti-kickback statute. Um, the OIG was willing to provide some advice that is you know, applicable during this public health emergency that they might otherwise um, find would implicate these statutes. Can clinical laboratories offer free COVID-19 antibody testing while providing other medically necessary blood tests? Um, so I do put some pretty um, strong caveats on sort of the enforceability of this. Again, it's not binding on other agencies it cannot guarantee prospective immunity or protection from OIG sanctions. And again, can't, can't opine on the Stark Law, but it's very helpful guidance. It's out there on their website. Um, in terms of the advisory opinion process, still there, still available. We saw nine opinions get issued last year, which I don't think was a significant drop off from the prior year. Um, I think there were six in 2019. So submissions maybe have flowed during the pandemic, but I expect that um, parties will continue to avail themselves of that process for arrangements that are outside of the PHE. And, you know, as we move into this value-based world where the stark um, exceptions are significantly different in some instances from the OIG safe harbors, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing some questions where parties you know, might be able to fit something in a Stark exception or Stark is not otherwise implicated, but they can't quite fit it squarely into one of those new value-based safe harbors where you might see some questions there, or you might see questions for entities that were carved out of protection under those value-based safe harbors, you know, labs, DME companies and the like, might want to get some comfort through an advisory opinion if they're going to wade into um, some of these value-based arrangements. One of the things I just wanted to mention, Matt, just circling back on sort of the topics that are covered by advisory opinions, and, and this goes with what I was just talking about. One thing OIG will not opine on is the fair market value of goods, items, or services, or whether an individual is a bona fide employee within the, the IRS code. So I just wanted to mention that because I think a lot of parties, you know, sometimes want to ask if something is fair market value, but OIG will not weigh in on that piece. Certainly, certainly no. And it's really good advice and, and, and really good insight on the changes and effects that we've seen uh, over the last, you know, 12, uh, 18 months or so uh, on the advisory process. It sounds like both on the CMS side and the OIG side, things are up and running uh, and still moving along at a, at a normal clip. Uh, but but always a good reminder that uh, those processes are there uh, for folks to avail themselves of and uh, do provide uh, uh, really good insight into how the agencies 
uh, evaluate and assess the kickback statute, the Stark law, and uh, and the other laws and regulations that apply to healthcare fraud and abuse. Uh, Kristen Carter and Laura Morgan, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this edition of the American Health Law Association Fraud and Abuse Podcast. Uh, as noted uh, for our listeners, uh, please uh, tune in uh, for a future edition on self-disclosures uh, with the agencies, and we'll continue this sort of CMS and OIT discussion. And of course, thank you as always to our sponsor, BRG, uh, for working with us and for uh, supporting this podcast. Please, uh, uh, you can download the American Health Law Association podcast uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, and we hope that you continue to tune in. Thanks so much.